put a son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Thanks be to the word. (laughs) Jill has uh, led the way for how I want us to hear the word this morning, which isn't just at an abstract level, but to feel the power of uh, not just the message, but the living word of God in the midst of it. For a number of months now, we've been exploring these themes around seeking spiritual R and R in the sense of renewal and revival. And it's already been quite a journey for us, as we've seen right from the opening moments of creation, right through how the whole biblical narrative is a narrative around renewal and revival. Last week we explored in particular the sense that it isn't just our own wrongdoing, our own rebellion, our own willfulness that we need to deal with before God and confession, but we do so as a community. Israel had judgment brought upon them because as a community they failed to hear and respond to God. And we recognise that that continues into our present day, that we can't separate ourselves off and saying, I'm okay, I've done this, others, that's their, their business. That we do own and have a responsibility for the sins of those who have gone before us, whether it's our forebears or whether it's the continuing uh, benefits of other wrongdoing and whether there are wrongs that need to be named and addressed on a community, even a national scale. And we recognise that that continues to be a very real question when we reflect on the relationship with uh, First Nations, First Cultures people in our country. But as I said last week, that was sort of part part one of a two-part story. And this week, we're seeing where does God provide a way forward in that space. And we're looking at, in particular, the promise and the journey that was commenced of return from exile. There are three great events that are the catalyst for a change of direction that we see in the Old Testament. The first great event, scientifically, could be described as the Big Bang. It is that decisive moment where God speaks and breathes into the darkness, into the messiness of that world and brings light and life and purpose and pathways to hope and to flourish and to grow, which we understand through the language of shalom, of peace and harmony. That is the great catalyst that drives the biblical narrative and comes to a sense of reaching its goal only in the final chapters of the Bible. As part of that journey, God calls a particular people, to travel with him, not only to be uh, fellow travellers and to receive the benefits, but to participate in that mission of God. And from the time of Abraham right through into the gathering of a people through the offspring of Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob and the family that goes, God had an intention not just to extract one particular group, but through that group to extend his blessings over all people. 
So the second great event is the exodus, God taking those people out of Egypt, saving them from the oppression of the Egyptians and leading them on the journey that would lend end into the promised land that would become their true spiritual home. Then last week we saw the, uh, the third great event, which is the exile, where the people who had been living and flourishing and growing in that promised land found themselves subject to defeat from the Babylonians and initially a small number of them were taken into exile um, including Daniel and then through subsequent waves of, uh, uh, of exiles all the people were taken and the promised land and Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls were broken, the temple was destroyed, all the holy representations of God's presence were taken into captivity over to Babylon. So last week we saw how that gave incredible angst as they sat down by the waters of Babylon and wept. And as they asked the theological questions, what was God doing here? Has God been defeated by the God of the Babylons? Has God been uh, taken his eyes off the ball? Has he been asleep on the job? And the prophets came back with a clear message. No, this is exactly what God promised would happen if you continued in your pathway away from me. If you were rebelling and doing your own thing, then judgment would come upon you. You have chosen the path of turning your back on me. And that's where it leads. So they sat down by the waters of Babylon and wept. As theologically rich those themes are, I want to enter into these passages, both of them, at an experiential level to recognise that this speaks of the realities of life in its very different moments and permutations that aren't just back then and there but are very much here and now. The first theme we do is picking up that experience of feeling a long way from home, the life of a sojourner, the life of someone who recognises that desire to return home. For me, it brought back memories um, a number of years ago. Some of you will recall that Sir Matthew sent two mission teams over to Nepal, 1998 and again in about 2001. On the first mission team, uh, we spent the first week uh, ministering to the, uh, the children's program at a UMN conference in Kathmandu. The second week, we were divided up into groups that went out to various different mission locations. And I ended up at Tanzen, which is a uh, UMN hospital, um, about 20, 22 hours bus trip from Kathmandu. Um, and when you say a bu- bus trip from Kathmandu, you've got to imagine mountain crevices and gravel and very, very close edges of the road for 22 hours. My knuckles were very tight at the end of that experience. As much as I tried to tell myself, these drivers know their stuff, they're experienced, you couldn't help but see the newspaper reports that pretty much every week a bus went off, the, off the, into a ravine and other things. When we eventually got to Tanzen, and I did have a day or two to explore it with the rest of the team, it was half a dozen of us, um, I got ill, which is not unknown for those who travel 
and I got one of those dreadful travel illnesses. I picked up a bug and I was just wretched. And even though I could look out the window of the guest house in um, Kathmandu, and it wasn't dissimilar to this one, I remember feeling a long way from home. That moment of thinking, okay, I just want to get home. <laughs> and facing the prospect of a long drive back in a windy bus before you've entered with a whole journey to get back home. Um, I actually wrote it in my journal at that stage, which our Jonathan gets out from time to time and reads. Home can seem a long, long way away. Uh, fortunately, I was in good company. Tom Flood was doing his medical practice at that time and was very attentive to me and was a hospital, so I was actually also able to have uh, the attention. That's another story. But those experiences at times when we just feel that distance and just long to get home, that's very much the experience not just of the individuals but the people in Babylon, the desire to say, how long, Lord, before we can return home? Will we return home? Because it raises a whole range of emotions and questions. For the people of Israel in Babylon, there was no assurance that they would return. You might remember that the people of Israel divided into two nations, the northern kingdom, about ten of the tribes, and the southern kingdom, one and a half or a couple of the tribes around Judea. And the northern kingdom had a number of prophets sent to them saying, unless you get your act together, unless you hear and take God's word seriously, if you keep on doing your own thing and deciding you know better, judgment will come upon you. And it did. They got defeated by the Assyrians, got taken into Samaria and never returned. In the biblical narrative, they did return eventually in the form of the Samaritans in the gospel stories. And that's where the, uh, the Judeans, the Jews, were saying, no, they don't deserve to come back. We have nothing to do with them. And God actually received them back in and through the ministry of Jesus. That's the whole background of a lot of those parables. And the parable son, that is the attitude to quite a degree of uh, the other brother who sort of said they aren't worthy of coming back. But it raises questions around, is there hope? Is, or has God just said, that's it, you've blown it. How many chances can I give you before I say enough, be gone? It raises profound, not just theological questions, but questions in our own life. It's those questions that God then speaks and the power of the words that suddenly shift the message to God saying, enough, time to return. I think there's always that chill that many of us get when we hear Handel's Messiah, well before we get to the hallelujah chorus and the triumph at the end, but that early moments, I think it's a tenor who sings, the, the voice, comfort, comfort, my people, Israel. The time has come. Pack your bags. We're going home. And the passage we had as our reading from Isaiah 43 is now picking up that spirit. And the prophets say, remember that this is God's, God's manner. This is the way in which God has proven himself in the past. When we look back to the way in which God has heard and responded, this is true of God's redemptive love and faithfulness 
faithfulness in action. What was the turning point for the, the exodus out of Israel when God heard the cries of his people in Egypt? He saw their suffering, the oppression, the abuse they were receiving. And God then worked with, with Moses to say, we've got to get these people out, get my people out. And so that whole narrative continued. And here God is saying that I've heard and I, I'm going into action. God, the, uh, the prophet, points back to God's record. Is God capable of doing this? You know, the Babylonians are one of the great powers of the ancient world. The city of Babylon was one of the wonders of the world, as we saw last week. And the prophet said, this is what the Lord says. He who makes a way in the sea and a path through the raging water, who brings out the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty one together, they lie down, they won't rise again. Be of no doubt, God can do this. He's pointing back to the time against the Egyptians. God is able to do this. That's not the question. But it's more the question of, do we deserve it? Will we do it? It's interesting how the passage continues. And it says, while we can look back to the past and see how God's great actions in the past, he says, but we're not going back. We're going forward. We're not trying to go back to where it was, wind back the clock. We don't do that. We move forward into something that is all new. And this wonderful verse that's it's well known and often quoted for good reason. Behold, God says, I will do a new thing in what lies ahead. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I'll even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Desert, did I just say? That would be desert. Don't read anything into that. It is a sweet thing. Thank you. We learn from the past, but we need to look to what lies ahead. With St. Matthew's, we learn from the past, but we're not going to go back to the past. We need to look to what lies ahead and the pathways that God is opening up for us. That is an intensely personal experience of feeling distant from God. It is not an uncommon experience at times, whether it's a deliberate time where we've made choices and we've said, look, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to do this, whether it's just out of willfulness, whether it's out of being like the prodigal son and just saying, I'm, gonna, I'm off, I'm going to step out from it, or whether it's that drift when we suddenly look up and realise that there's a, a distance between ourselves from God or whatever brings it upon it can be an intensely personal experience and it is an awful one to have a sense that I'm not right with God that I'm not even sure if I should pray there are times in my own journey where my prayer has simply been Lord don't let go of me because I just feel so weak and it's also that spiritual warfare those voices in our head that just get into our headspace and saying, what do you think you're doing praying? Why, you don't, why do you think God would answer your prayer? 
Why would he be bothered when he knows the reality of you? And God says, how many times am I going to hear all these promises just to have them broken again? Those voices that saying that, you know, you're really a hypocrite. Others don't know, but I know just the realities of our life. Who do you think you are turning up? What are you doing here? That is precisely the spiritual voices that God says we need to get out of our head. He said, they aren't the issue. What I want you to hear is that I love you and my grace is more than sufficient for any and every situation, whether it's out of a mess that we've caused or whether it's just out of that drift. God says there is a way forward. So the imagery that it shows us, that God says, I'll provide a pathway. No matter where you find yourself, whether you're off the track or whether you're in a, a thicket of some description, you just can't see which way's up, I will provide a pathway for you. That is an incredibly powerful and wonderful message to hear. There have been times when I've got lost in the bush, not dramatically so, but you know enough to get a bit of a panic going and not quite sure which way... I thought I was going to go back and see some familiar landmarks and they're not there. And you begin to wonder which way's up, which way's north, where am I going to go? And then you come across a path and you sigh the sigh of relief. Keep to the path and see where it takes us. God says, I will give you a pathway out of the wilderness. You won't necessarily see it all lie ahead of you, but you'll see the next few steps. Take this step. And in the next step, then the next step will become clearer. But there is no mess, no place of getting off tracks where God is not able to provide that pathway for us. And I have to say that is also true for us as a church. I think the churches in the Western world, especially a number of the Western churches that have had a lot of resources in the past through Christendom and others and the capacity to say, we're okay, we've got the resources are now doing that searching, saying maybe we have lost our way. Maybe we've been so focused on ourselves and our own needs, we haven't been willing to take the steps of mission and ministry as we're called to do. God says to the church, that pathway is there. But the moment to take that step is now. Do not put it off. And then God's promise is that I'll give you water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Now I've got that other word in my head and I have to think twice. But that is not just the water and the freshness, it's the whole ecosystem around it, sense of life and bird life and the animals that come out at dust to, to drink and all the world around it is refreshing. It's a wonderful image and we certainly know what that looks like in South Australia. And we do pray that our travelling party will discover plenty of waterholes in the desert as they have their journey. But we know sometimes that water comes from the great artesian basin, it comes from below, but other times, and necessarily, it comes through the great deluges that come through, the growing of the storm clouds that are fearful, are powerful, and they are necessary in the midst of things because they do provide that refreshment for our water catchment areas and the the water flows that happen in Queensland and New South Wales and Northern Territory make their way down 
and feed into the river systems, eventually down into the River Murray and others. The power of God in that space is to be respected. It's not just that nice little uh, quick little um, sprinkle, but we need to have the real powerful water that's coming into our system. And it is shared. God, the rains come upon the godly and the ungodly, the righteous and the unrighteous. And it is a wonderful experience. Now, I can tell you, if you do a Google search for dancing in the rain, you get an interesting array of images that come up. Some farmers, for some reason, have a tendency to just toss off all their clothing and go running through the rain, but I'm not going to decide that wasn't quite appropriate for Sunday morning. Not sure it actually was ever appropriate for a photo, but anyway, uh, some images you just can't unsee. But there are those moments in which the rain comes and we don't go scurrying away, we just take delight in it and think how wonderful it is. When Fiona and I and John first went across to New Zealand in 2008, you might remember there had been three years of drought in South Australia. It was so dry, you walk in the bush and it would just crackle, it was so dry. And... Uh, our friends in New Zealand were apologising for all the rain. We spent days just saying, don't apologise. We've just, <laughs> this is wonderful, wonderful rain. And sometimes it's just fun. Fiona had the, uh, the image this morning when we were just reflecting on the passages and the themes of being in a cave with a waterfall outside and stepping out and just allowing that waterfall to shower you in that space. Now, I did a Google search this morning because I decided it was a great image to work with. About 90% of the images that came up if you type in bathing in the showers into the waterfalls, and again, not particularly appropriate for Sunday morning in church. Uh, they're more of a tourist nature. But I came across this one, and I thought, this will work. <laughs> Look at the delight of the baby elephants. Absolute delight in that shower. And there's a sense in which we want to just to allow God to deluge us, to refresh us, to wash us off and give us a sense of enjoying life in itself. But I do want to finish with that very powerful parable of the prodigal son and the second brother, the second son. In particular, I've chosen on the, the moment of returning now, there's a theological level in which this parable speaks into Israel that has lost its way, Israel that has wandered and been in exile and needs to return back to the Father, the Heavenly Father. Um, and there's a lot of uh, richness around exploring it at that level. But I want to stay with that experiential level of recognising that whether it's a choice of the son who just said to the Father, Enough, I can't wait for you to die. Can I just have my inheritance now so I can go overseas and have my great overseas experience? And just turns the back. Or whether it's the angst, you imagine the father looking on on the son and not just the pain of just saying, I want to have my inheritance now and just walking out of here. But the pain of parents seeing children leave home embarking on journeys and the anxiety and the concern and saying, well, you keep in touch. And sometimes we know that that's a journey that is necessary. <clears throat> there are so many layers in which this parable speaks to us. 
But then there's just the foolishness of the son who comes to a realisation, the parable says, comes to his senses. What was I thinking? The money has gone. I'm far from home. These pigs are being better fed than I am. And the change of direction, knowing that there is no claim to return home, saying, well, I'm your flesh and blood. You've got to have me back. Now he comes back and says, I have sinned. I've sinned against heaven and earth. I've been such a fool and I'm in such a mess. And that powerful moment, and Jill, we were all with you, because you cannot but be moved with a father who is not just there with his arms crossed, waiting for the son to crawl home. Not to saying, well, if you hurt, learnt your message, I told you so. And even the father who, before the wider community, were expecting that to be the, the stance of the father of the household. Everyone comes to them but the father who just sheds off and runs and embraces the son with those amazing words, my son who was dead is alive, who was lost is found in the hug that goes. Many years ago I came across this sculpture by Charlie Mackesy. <coughs> it was at a time when um, someone who was known to many of us at St Matthew's, Sue Pemberthy, was struggling with her cancer. And we knew that Sue was getting to a stage where her journey with that struggle was coming to an end. This sculpture spoke to Sue powerfully because it conveys not, a, not just a humble son returning home, but the son who was absolutely depleted. He was just exhausted in every way, emotionally, spiritually and physically and just collapses into the Father. And the sense that in that weakness and that weariness, the Father's love embraces but holds firm and lifts up. That is the image that Israel experienced. The initial instrument of return from exile was a surprising one. God said he would send an army and they looked around, well, what army is going to come and defeat the Babylonians, They're the big superpower of their day? God sent King Cyrus, the king of Persia, as his servant to do his work. Cyrus wasn't aware of it, but he released the people from captivity and gave them, we will see in coming weeks, um, resources to go back and to restore, rebuild the walls, rebuild Jerusalem. That's what's coming in coming weeks. But here we need to hear it in that deeply personal way, but also for us as a church and us as a denomination, as a people, at this time where life is hard and we do feel weak and at times we feel so depleted we wonder where the next breath is going to come from. And we realise that the Father's breath and strength restores, replenishes, feeds us again, provides us with the water and the pathway from here. It is with that sense of thankfulness and with anticipation that we can then face Monday and the week that comes and the spring that is about to come upon us and the season that lies ahead and all those journeys and realities of life, knowing that God, God's faithfulness, God's love, redemptive love, 
is the one that sustains and carries us. See, I am doing a new thing and I'll carry you into that new thing and the life that is to come. Amen.